Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. John Gallagher, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hey, thanks. It's really good being here with you guys. Yeah, Sean, you and I connected through uh, what I affectionately refer to as the scribe for our podcast, Rob Dull. Uh, Rob's daughter and your daughter, I think, played softball together. Yeah, that's right. Coached the, the two of them for six years, seven years, something like that together. And uh, that was an extension of having coached my own daughter since she was tiny. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's how Rob and I got to know each other. Yeah, and you're, uh, we'll, we'll talk about your family towards the end, but your daughter's in college now uh, playing, right? Yeah, yeah, she's uh, getting ready to start her sophomore year at Florida International down in Miami, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to a, a good season down there. It's it's going to be uh, fun now that we've moved to Florida to be able to uh, get closer to her and and be able to see her play some some more than we did when we were in Virginia. Yeah, certainly, uh, you, you should be able to attend most games, if not all games, and I, I assume that your daughter loves that. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're two and a half hours away from campus now, which isn't too close. So we're, we're not on top of, of her. And she, she told us that Miami is her city anyway. So we're, we're not really allowed to go down there unless it's for softball. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, good time. Right, we'll talk about your family towards the end. So sure. you grew up uh, in what I affectionately refer to as North Kakalaki, right? <laughs> yeah, no, we, I grew up in, in uh, Colorado, up in the mountains. We were at about 9,000 feet uh, up in the middle of nowhere uh, on the other side of Pikes Peak, kind of near Colorado Springs. And so I, I grew up in a little log cabin in the woods. Wow. So, but you went to high school in North Carolina. Is that where I got that from? Yeah, we did. Yeah. I moved down to, to uh, North Carolina, I guess, uh, at my freshman year of high school. And, um, but I, I learned to play baseball up in Colorado, hitting rocks out over a meadow uh, on the mountainside. So wait a minute, Pikes Peak is uh, like 14,000 feet above sea level, something like that? Yeah, yeah, it is 14,000 feet. And we kind of we kind of sat up on the mountainside across from it and and looked over, had a great view of the backside of Pikes Peak. And, and we sat, at, like I said, at 9,000 feet. So it was it was scarce for oxygen up there, too. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, you're a couple of miles above sea level. That, that's uh, you're going to be in shape if you're running around up there. <laughs> yeah. When I moved to North Carolina, I won it cross country finally. <laughs> it was unfair, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They they have something called the Bar Trail. You may or may not have heard of that. Uh, the Olympic Training Center will will send their their training their folks up for training. It uh, sits at the base of Pikes Peak at about six thousand five hundred feet, and you run up to the top at fourteen thousand one ten. Uh, so so you've got a eight thousand or so uh, jump in elevation, and it'll really really burn your legs and your lungs. Yeah, you've got to be in uh, fantastic world class shape, I imagine, to make that run. Yeah, absolutely. People flying from all over the place to do it. So what were your parents doing that uh, had you guys living out there? Well, my, my dad was actually uh, working at uh, NORAD, which is the, you know, in Cheyenne Mountain, the, the, the space complex there. And, um, and so we, we moved out for that reason. But uh, the, the real reason we moved out there was to ski. Uh, so they, they were uh, they were the kind of the hippie types and they just wanted to ski every every weekend. And so that's kind of how I grew up was you know, on skis ever since I was tiny and, you know, jumping off cliffs and, and falling over a bunch. And, and when you're, when you're that close to the ground, you really don't get hurt. What's the most extreme thing you've done on skis? Uh, I, I have jumped off cliffs before. Um, gone with my buddies down, you know, at, at, at about uh, 10 years old or so and, and jumped off, not, not, you know, any of those like 40 or 50 foot cliffs or anything, but get a little bit of air, you know, maybe do a little trick in the air on the way down and, and you land soft enough. 
Yeah, that well, I, I have to remind our listening audience that the snow out there is a lot more powdery than it is. When we- <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't ski out in the east anymore. Um, I, I got too many concussions trying, trying to do exactly the same thing, jumping over rocks or jumping off stuff. And yeah, the ice is a little bit different out in the, the east coast than it is in the west coast. So. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it's hard pack and uh, not much give. Yeah, that's right. And I found that out very, very much firsthand. All right. So in the wintertime, or I imagine even early spring or late fall, you were skiing a lot. What were you doing when the snow wasn't around as a kid? Yeah, I was I, I was I was just playing ball, just playing baseball. Uh, we, we had a, a meadow out in the bottom of the house, kind of still on a mountainside. And, and I had a, a whole bunch of decomposed granite that was about baseball size I could pick up and I would just beat my um uh, my, my bat is as much as I could just throwing the ball up in the air, throwing the rock up in the air and, and hitting it out over the, the mountainside. So, uh, that, that was kind of the, my drill to do by myself. And, and, uh, every once in a while we'd, we'd get a baseball or two and I'd try to hit it, but it would get stuck in the, in the mountainside somewhere in a tall grass and you couldn't find it. And so then you'd have to pick up rocks and hit them again. Yeah. Wow. When did you first play organized baseball? I, I get, you know, there were, there was some organization up there. It was just, it was about an hour away. We, we had to drive down to Colorado Springs to play. So, uh, you know, my, my parents bless them. They, they had the, the willingness to drive me about an hour each direction to, to get to practice, which, uh, isn't too much different from what Rob was doing with, uh, with his daughter, Riley, uh, coming up to our practices in, in Northern Virginia from down there in Richmond. So, uh, I, I, I appreciated that firsthand from my own childhood. Uh, were there other sports you could have played and, uh, besides skiing and baseball? Uh, no, you know, to be honest with you, I was not athletic enough to play in the, another sport very well. <laughs> I, I frankly wasn't even athletic enough to play baseball all that well. Uh, I, I could, I could hit and, um, and I could, I could run, I, I guess a little bit in a straight line, but, um, you know, in all honesty, that I, I stayed around as long as I did in baseball because I, I could hit. Um, and, and that takes a, a type of athleticism that is different from something like basketball or, or football or something like that, that it requires a lot more pure athleticism. So uh, I, I, I kind of joke around that I was a, a fairly clumsy professional athlete there for a while. Well, so look, I played a little bit of baseball, not at the level you did. And I do know that it requires a lot of hand-eye coordination and arguably the, the best hand-eye coordination on earth to hit a baseball, whether it's moving at 98 miles an hour or moving at 85 miles an hour with uh, some 12 to six motion, that, that takes some real rare coordination. Yeah, you know, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why it's dubbed the hardest thing to do in sport. And and I know the golf guys try to claim that they're that they're it's harder for them to hit a golf ball straight, but I, I disagree because when you're when you're trying to hit something moving, you know, 95 plus with with a little bit of movement, and you're and you got a round bat trying to hit a round ball and be on time, uh, that, that, that to me is a much more difficult thing to do. Um, now I, I said that on purpose, not, not as a baseball or, 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 you know, specifically talking about baseball, because I would actually argue even being a, a former pro ball player myself, that, uh, hitting a softball is harder than hitting a baseball. Um, uh, because, because the angle that the pitcher, you know, releases the ball when she's in the circle, you've got that movement up, you've got that movement down. Um, and, and of course, laterally and changes the speeds. Well, when you're hitting a baseball, it's all moving down. Um, I, I know they'll talk on, on TV and you'll kind of hear people talk about a rising fastball in baseball. It doesn't rise. You do the physics, you look at it, it's all coming down. So you can afford to only really look in a couple of planes when you're trying to hit a baseball. When you're trying to hit a softball, you got to look in all planes. You got to look for a ball going up, which is why you see in softball the, a lot of 
a lot of pitchers that are super successful have that rise ball that strike everybody out. Well, uh, so so to me, the most difficult thing to do in sports is is hit a softball. Second most difficult is to hit a baseball. Well, and the, and the softball hitting a softball, the pitcher's a lot closer too. She's on top of you. Oh yeah, well for for sure. I mean the the, the reaction time you can do the math on the reaction time. You know it, it gets comparable with the best softball pitchers and the best baseball pitchers. Reaction times are pretty uh, pretty similar. But what uh, what people don't realize is the the sort of the additional leap um, that that the softball pitchers will have, and they'll release the ball uh, a percentage closer than than a baseball pitcher will. Wow. Uh, for for exactly that reason. So yeah, it is in my view a lot more difficult to to. Um, pre predict where a softball is going to go in that first split second once it leaves the the pitcher's hand yeah um, it's all about that split second right yeah it is and you know i i th- thinking back to to my years in baseball i i really really felt like there was a, a a clean moment in time whenever you were hitting a baseball and you could see the ball being released from the pitcher's hand and you just in that first we'll call it five six feet that the ball was traveling have realized he made a mistake and that he was going to be left out over the plate. And, and you, you almost, it's almost like, you know, time would stop and you, and you'd know that that ball was coming in, you were getting ready to hit it hard. Um, I've, I've gone in and tried to face a couple of our, of our softball pitchers from time to time. And, and I just don't have that first few minutes, if your first few feet to watch the ball and, and have that moment to know that I'm going to hit it well. Uh, so I think that's what the, uh, the softball hitters lose. Yeah. Uh, Ted Williams, I think famously talked about how, Everything seemed to be in slow motion for him, even though he felt like he was moving in regular speed or regular time. Uh, and he, I think I, he has the highest batting average uh, in the season ever, right? Yeah, uh, correct. In the in the modern era, you're you're absolutely right. Um, but I, but I would say that's probably true for every sport. Um, you know, having played maybe not at a high level, as I said earlier, any of those other sports, I, I would say that. Um, you hear quarterbacks talk about the game slowing down. You hear point guards talk about the game slowing down. And, and I just think that that's a function of, of your mental uh, focus and confidence and relaxation being in such a good place that you are so mentally attuned to everything that's going on that it does physically slow down. And I certainly, whenever I was on hot streaks, and I'll caveat this with I was a very hot and cold hitter, um, you know, when I was on hot streaks, it definitely felt like that. It definitely felt like things had slowed down. The game was slow. The game was easy. The game was soft. And, and you, you had a whole lot more success that way. And, and, and I do think that, you know, you, you talk about the, the NFL season getting ready to start up and you, you talk about these great rookie quarterbacks coming into the league. And you, you think about how well they're going to do in the NFL game versus the, the college game. And, and the, the thing that I always look at every year around this time is does the game look slow to that quarterback or is it, does everything look fast to him still? And that, that I think is a distinguishing factor sometimes between the, the great athletes at any sport uh, and, and the, um, the athletes that are great at times. Uh, you look at the Michael Jordans of the world, his, his game was slow and it was always slow. It was consistently slow because he was in that mental state all the time. Whereas, um, you know, maybe maybe a, a, this is probably a bad analogy, but a Scottie Pippen wasn't was awesome Hall of Fame at level player, but not in every single game he went out like Michael Jordan. It was always slow for him. Uh, I think that's that's the distinguishing factor in those just truly great athletes. Yeah, let's let's jump back to you being a kid. Uh, you moved to North Carolina before your freshman year of high school or during your freshman year of high school. There are no ski slopes in North Carolina, at least not none to speak of, really. <laughs> Maybe way out west there are. So your parents didn't move for uh, skiing to North Carolina. And we don't have to talk about why they moved. But you're, you've now found yourself in North Carolina after being a guy who hits uh, 
rocks in the meadows at, at 6,000 <laughs> feet. Um, what was it a cultural change for you going from Colorado to Carolina or what was that? Like? Yeah. You know, it was, it was a competition change more than anything. I, I, you know, felt like I was the the best player in, in the area in Colorado, but, you know, kind of big fish in a small pond thing. And, and, you know, you get down to, to what at that time was a, a hotbed of, of high school uh, baseball. There were, there were great teams that were competing on a national level, uh, you know, all over. And, um, and, and in fact, the team that I, that I joined down there that first year was in the top 15 in the country by, by various publications. So, you know, you, you quickly realized you weren't the big fish in the, in the small pond anymore. And, um, and I, and I think that that, you know, as I look back at my growth and, and, you know, we, we talked about the softball team that I coached, you know, the, the Rob's daughter played on earlier. Um, you know, I, I look at the girls that were at that level, uh, you know, at that age as well. And I think one of the things that, that this kind of game teaches you is, is something that's that's a bit important in the in other facets of life. And that is, hey, you know, you got to find a way to adjust. And sometimes it's just a matter of working hard, harder than everybody else. And, and I think that that's that's what I the environment I came into in North Carolina. I think it was a matter of uh, oh, I've really got to bust my butt now and I've got to outwork everybody else. And fortunately, I had a couple of coaches, high school coaches that were around me at the time uh, that, that instilled that with me and said, you know, basically pushed me to say, look, you know, you've got to work twice as hard as everybody else in order to achieve your goal. And, and, you know, some of those lessons, I think, carry through life. I did that when I got to school, when I got to college, you know, I, I did that in, in various jobs that I've had in, in my professional life as well. And, and you, you learn that on the, the baseball field. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I went back and, and coached all the years that I coached youth uh, softball is, is for exactly lessons like that, because I think there's a lot that, that kids learn on the field that don't have anything to do with you know, what their, their financial background is or their, their race or their gender or anything else. It's just purely competition. You, you either go out there and you hit the ball or you don't. And, and, you know, all the work that you've done is either going to put you in a good position to hit that ball or it's not. And, and so, so I really love the, the equalizer of sports um, that, that sort of puts everybody on a level playing field and says, okay, the accumulation of everything you've done to prepare for this moment now plays out. If you if you put in the work, you're going to have success. If you don't, you're not going to. Yeah, it's essentially a meritocracy, and the meritocracy does not care what your background is. The meritocracy rewards you for for effort and uh, hard work prior to that day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good way to put it. So, so you your family moved to North Carolina so you could pursue baseball. Uh, yeah, correct. Um, you know, I, I had uh, I, I had a, a family structure that that supported what I wanted to to do, uh, supported the dream that I had, and uh, you know somehow I guess I convinced them that I would do put in that extra work. <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, it's it's not completely fair to say that 100% of that decision was just so so a 13 year old could go play baseball. I mean, my my dad found a job and. And, uh, you know, it, it ended up working out. So I, I think that uh, there were a couple other factors. But, yeah, uh, by and large, the main, main reason they moved was to, uh, to, to let me play at a, at a higher level, which I, I could not have found that competition on a mountaintop in Colorado. Yeah. So uh, is one of the lessons learned here that hippies are good parents? <laughs> yeah, something like that. That's that's exactly right. If you got anything out of the first five minutes of this conversation, that was the lesson. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, so, I mean, I look when I looked you up a few. You and I spoke a few months ago. You were easy to find on the internet uh, for baseball, 
Uh, and I, there was reference to you breaking a few hitting records for national, uh, I'm sorry, North Carolina state yeah. level records. Do you still hold some of those records? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure. For a while there, people would tell me, I, I would get an email or I would get a reporter call and say, hey, you know, so-and-so is getting close to your hitting streak or, you know, somebody else's hit four home runs in, in, in a game. And, and just to kind of recap, I had five home runs in one game, which was national record. And then I had a 51-game hitting streak, which was a national record. And, um, and then a bunch of North Carolina state records. And, and every once in a while, they would call and, and, you know, let me know somebody was getting close. And it, it was really kind of cool because, you know, every once in a while – you'd get a word from another kid out there and some, you know, and ask for advice on, on what you're doing as you're getting close to the record. I haven't heard that in a while. So I don't know if somebody ended up breaking any of those records or those streaks or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, back to what I was saying before the, the hard work did pay off. Um, and, and, you know, you, you hope that the, the kids learn that lesson that, that it's not just about the work, but that, that you will re- reap the benefits if you do put in the work. So I do have a crack research staff that uh, will be able to figure out whether you still hold those two national records. Uh, I imagine the five home run thing, I, you got to bat five times in that game and you hit five home runs. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And, and and I'll connect that to something I was saying earlier. You know, the game was very slow, uh, that that game for me. That that was the one one time I would say in my my entire life that I felt that in the zone you used to hear athletes talk about. I don't hear them talk about it a whole lot anymore, but um, you know, there it, it was the strangest feeling, uh, it, Paul. It was it was one of these things where uh, you know, I, I walked up after hitting the first three, I walked up to the fourth one and thought, eh, I'll probably just hit another home run. And I did. And it was that simple. There was no additional thought. And then by the time, by the time I walked up for my fifth one, and by the way, they had put in five different pitchers. I mm. saw that they put in another pitcher and, and, uh, it, it, it was almost like it had already happened. Um, it, it, the, the level of confidence was, and, and the mental state was something that I never found a way to repeat for the rest of my life. Um, but at, in that moment, there was zero question. It was almost as if it had already happened. It was like, you know, if you, if you drop a penny, is it going to fall down to the ground or is it going to fly up in the air? Well, of course it's going to fall that fall down to the ground. I walked up, dug in for that fifth, fifth home run. And well, yeah, of course it was going to go over the fence and, and it did. Wow. I mean, yeah. And, and Sean, I, I, I don't know you that well, but you strike me as a guy that is not cocky. It was just, you know, like, I hope very, not. <laughs> very matter of fact, like I, I'm going to hit another home run here. It, yeah, is it, it was, yeah, it, it was very, it was simple. There was nothing analytic about it. It was, it was just like, well, this is what will happen. And then I'll go around the bases. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, and, and nobody else has hit five home runs in a high school baseball game. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think so. I, I remember at one point somebody uh, calling and say somebody had hit five straight, but it was three in one game in their last three at bats and then two in a game, you know, a few days later or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I haven't heard about anybody since. If, if you do find out, I'd love to know and give that guy a call. Yeah, uh, I think our crack research staff might be working on it right now. <laughs> so what grade in high school did you know uh, you were going to try pro baseball? Yeah, I mean, it was always the dream. Um, and, and yeah, I think by the time I got to my senior year, I realized it was likely to happen. I mean, we had, uh, we had a guy named Trot Nixon who was an outfielder for the Red Sox on, on my team for the first two years. Uh, you, in high you, you and Trot were on the same team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 both played on there. Ended up being five guys in pro ball on that team. We were ranked number one in the country, uh, and and for good reason. Oh uh, my so, gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, so I saw his process and saw uh, so I was a sophomore when he was a senior, and uh, you know, of course, every every game we had, it was packed with pro scouts and and uh, saw kind of what he did and how he was and how everybody how the, the scouts interacted with him. And of course, he went seventh overall that year to the to the Red Sox. 
And, uh, and so, you know, two years later, I, I had pretty got good memory of how that went and saw that kind of same kind of thing happening to me where, where, you know, I, every time we, we had a new game, no matter what, you know, backwoods part of North Carolina it was in, there was going to be, you know, 30 scouts there. So, um, so I, I, I pretty much knew by that at the time I got to my senior year that, it, that I was going to go, didn't know how high I would go, uh, because, uh, you know, as I described before, and it, it is a, a, an honest evaluation, you know, well, I'm not the most athletic guy in the world. Um, so, so, you know, I wasn't seen as a, as a, as a five tool guy, you know, I was seen as a, as a guy that hit a ball pretty much further than anybody else. Um, but you know, wasn't going to look smooth running the bases and, you know, wasn't, wasn't going to look smooth picking up a ground ball at, at first base. So, uh, I ended up going the fifth round, uh, which, which is great. Um, and, and signs, you know, within a couple of days of the draft. And who drafted you? It was the Rangers, so I went to the Rangers for six years, uh, and and then uh, went over to the Expos for for about a half season, and then went to the Royals for about a year, uh, all in the minor leagues. You know, it was all I, I did get up on the big league roster in in '99 with the with the Rangers. Um, that that was the year that uh, that I was stuck behind uh, Will Clark and Rafael Palmero at first base, and a little bit tough, a little bit tough there. Um, but uh, uh, it was also the year that the, the Rangers had made a, a push for the playoffs and they, they decided, so I was on the 40 man, uh, which for, for those who aren't super into the, the, you know, the contractual part of, of major league baseball, that means you can be called up in September. Uh, so play, played on the minor league in AAA pretty much that whole year and, uh, and, and was eligible on September 1st to be called up the big league club uh, along with 15 other guys. So there's 25 guys in the big leagues, 15 guys in the minor leagues kind of make up that 40 man roster. Rangers had gotten together that year and said that they had gelled at the big league team. They had gelled really well and decided they weren't going to call anybody up. Uh, so me and 14 of my buddies got the same, same phone call, uh, later, later that day on September 1st saying, you know, we're, we're actually not going to call you up. So I never got my, uh, my time in the big leagues, uh, despite yeah. being on the, on the big league roster. Well, you made it to a place that, uh, most of humanity can't even fathom. Um, but look, well, let's come back to the, uh, that year in a bit. Let's yeah. start with you, you get drafted, uh, and then you start in rookie league at that yeah, level? Yeah, yeah. Gulf Coast League was the first first year, and really that's just kind of a half season. They bring the guys that they just drafted out of high school mostly, but, but a lot of the uh, the guys that they pulled out of Latin America also uh, would come in for that half season, and they'd, they'd put you together for, I don't know what it was, maybe 60, 60 or so games. And uh, you'd, you'd play kind of a half season, just getting used to swinging, swinging with wood in your hands instead of with with metal in your hands. And and then, uh, yeah, from there, you know, you just kind of worked your way through the minor leagues. So I spent the next next six seasons, you know, bouncing around the country and, you know, saw most of the country. I, I played in just about every minor league there is. <laughs> so you, you uh, bounced between you started rookie then bouncing between single and triple A over those six years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they brought me up um, uh, right at the end of my rookie season. They, they had a playoff run going on in the New York Penn League. Uh, so I was up in, in Poughkeepsie, New York, in a place called Hudson Valley. And we, we made a playoff run there. So they called me up for that, uh, which is, is still, you know, the low A ball. And then the, uh, the next year I started in, sort of in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, played, played almost a full year there and, and then uh, moved back down to uh, Port Charlotte, which is where we had our, in Florida, where we had our spring training to have a, a Florida State League there. Played there for a year, year and a half, uh, bounced up to double A with the, the um, uh, Rangers, the Tulsa Drillers it was the name of the team back, at the, back then. And then bounced between uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City for a couple of years. Um, and, and then when my time was over with the Rangers, uh, they, uh, I'd gone over to the Expos, played in double A in Harrisonburg, uh, Pennsylvania. 
which was their their double A. Um, and then uh, with the Royals, I played in uh, in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, so that that hit most of the minor leagues. I never played in the um, in a couple of the ones out west. But you know, by the time I bounced to all those different leagues, I think I had gotten most of them. So, uh, can you talk at a high level about what the minor league experience is like? Because my impression is there's there's not a ton of money to be made. You have to really love the sport if you're going to do it for as long as you did it in the minors. Uh, you have to be a lover of baseball, and you, obviously you came close. And so, yeah, you know, that close, you you want to keep striving for it. But just tell me generally about the experience. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's true. The 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 um uh the movies are right. You know, you don't make money. In fact, I think I lost money. I claim losses on my taxes every single year I was in the minor leagues. The only year I made a may have broken even was when I was on the forty man roster because then you kind of get the the uh, minor league version of the big league pay. Um, but the, uh, but I ever, every other year, you know, everybody goes back after the season's over and, and they, they find a job and you, they, they work their job, um, because it's just not enough money to sustain. So, I mean, uh, you know, I, my first check was for $800 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I was, I, I lost that in rent and food right away. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess towards the end, I was maybe up to $1,200 a month or something like that. But uh, I think what most people don't understand is that when, and this is still the case today, when you're in the minor leagues, you don't get paid during spring training. You don't get paid during the off season. You are only paid during the time, the days that you're actually playing games or off days in between. But while the schedule is, is on, those are the only times you're getting paid. So, you know, we'd go down to spring training and we wouldn't get paid down there either. Um, yeah. So you got to find, you got to find a way to sustain yourself, which is, is super challenging for guys, especially the guys that they were bringing in from, you know, uh, poorer countries in Latin America, they didn't have any money uh, at all. So they had to have help uh, a lot of times from some of the big league guys or, you know, some other guys around that would take care of them, let them stay for free or something like that. Now the, the um, most minor league teams will put you up in a hotel if you can't afford to stay in a house for spring training. So they, they would at least cover something like that. Yeah, that seems uh, awfully contrary to how the uh, the big league functions, right? Once you get to the show, there's more money than you can fathom, and then yeah. the experience in the, in the minors is just a very, very different uh, experience. It, it yeah, seems a little it incongruous with the spirit of hey, you're part of this organization. We want to we don't we don't have to throw millions of dollars at you, but we should be supporting you better than not paying you for spring training. Yeah, no, that that's correct, and 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 there is a huge disconnect in in the salary. I mean, no company would, you know, no big call it for Fortune five hundred company would treat their their employees in in such a different way. Where you know the the top, uh, you know, call it twenty percent of the organization is all being paid, you know, ten million dollars a year, and the other eighty percent is barely, you know, getting twelve hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, it, you know, no organization would run itself that way. I, I will say this though, people ask me this question from time to time. Um, you know, what do you think about the, the major league baseball salaries? And, and here's what I say about that. I, you know, I, good for all those guys, uh, that, that are making that money. And we even felt that way when we were in the minor leagues. I mean, of course we wish we had a little bit more of it, uh, but, but good for them because here's the, here's the analogy. Take, take those fortune 500 companies that, that I mentioned and then take the, the, you know, top 0.001% of CEOs across the world. They are making well more money than the top 0.001% of, of professional athletes are making. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, good for them that they, that they got that money. I, no, no hard feelings. I think most of us actually did feel that way. Yeah, no, I, I don't begrudge the, uh, the players uh, or even the coaches, I begrudge the front offices that allow that to go on. And, and I guess you're trying to be competitive. It is a business and they figured out a way to squeeze a couple more bucks uh, to the bottom line, but 
it just it doesn't seem right. And apparently there's been some action recently that I'm not completely well read on, uh, but it seems to be moving in a better direction for some of the minor league players. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the same. I mean, they also cut down the number of minor league teams out there. So you, you also don't have the the spread where, I mean, we had eight teams in our organization with, with the Rangers, plus a couple of, of, you know, teams that were loosely affiliated in, in the Dominican Republic and then Puerto Rico. So uh, they, they just don't have that extensive network of teams anymore, so they can afford to pay a little bit better. So technically the Montreal Expos are not around anymore. Tell me about your experiences with uh, the Royals and the Rangers versus say the Expos. Yeah. So, uh, so I, the Expos was an interesting experience. I mean, it, it, every one of us was afraid we weren't getting our paycheck, even for as small as that paycheck was, uh, you know, it, it was, but we were supposed to get a paycheck every two weeks, just like everybody else. And, you know, uh, they'd come through the the clubhouse and they'd say, yeah, we're sorry. The organization didn't, didn't have enough money to pay us this week. You guys are going to have to find a way to get by for a few more days until payroll can cut the check. So uh, I, I wasn't at all surprised whenever the, uh, the Washington Nationals took over that organization and, and it disappeared out of Montreal. Yeah, you're not going to win a lot of games as a, a, an organization when you're not paying your guys the way you said. You're, you're going to pay them a very little amount, but you can't pay it the way you said you were going to pay it. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the big league guys had concerns too, but I'll, I'll, I'll let them tell that story and not tell it for them. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, so when you were in high school – you were you were a baseball player who uh, was setting state and national records uh, at various points in your career, and you were dating a young lady who eventually became your your wife. And you, you told mm -hmm. me at some point, and I know your background with MIT at a very high level. You're obviously a very math and science oriented guy, like yeah. off the charts kind of guys. And you told me that you didn't pass a class your senior year in high school. What, what was that class? <laughs> Yeah, that, that class was calculus. Uh, I'm sure MIT doesn't like to hear that, but I, I did I did uh, fail calculus my senior year uh, in in high school. So any kids that are listening to this, don't don't follow my example. It's it's a bad example. Uh, but yeah, I was uh, so so my wife and I uh, were in high school together. So we were high school sweethearts, and and uh, it so happened that my um, my calculus class was at her lunch period. Uh, so I, I think I made the appropriate choice to uh, to go see my future wife instead of uh, instead of going and learning more calculus. But um, I, 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 I can't remember if I shared this with you before, but I always felt like calculus was wrong anyway. Um, and, and, and it turns out some of the, the higher end math theory does say that calculus is wrong. It's a, it's a great engineering tool, but it's, it's you know, technically wrong uh, you know, from a pure math perspective. And, uh, and, and I didn't like it for that reason either, but I think that that was just a justification I made in my own mind to go see my future wife. Right. Not, not only do I want to go see my future wife, uh, you guys are actually wrong with this whole calculus. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was a history major, so you're way over my head. If, if we go any farther in math, uh, I, I can't hang with you. <laughs> All right, next subject. Yeah, so, so, well, so part, part of that equation for you was you, you knew you were going to get drafted. You assumed you were going to get drafted yeah. and you would pursue a baseball career. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? I, I did. I did. Um, I think we approached the, the group of us that were doing negotiations with the Rangers uh, when they drafted me. Approached it in, a, in the right way, and that that was. I had a scholarship to Duke. Um, it was pretty much a full ride to Duke uh, I, and, and a full ride to Georgia. I ended up not deciding which ones of those um, 
that, that I was going to take until we went through the negotiation um, with the Rangers and kind of understood. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to leverage a scholarship program that Major League Baseball still has in existence, by the way, um, which which allows players, if as long as they go back to school within two years of retiring, uh, will cover a portion of their of their college. So we negotiated that in. Um, so I, I, I did feel comfortable making the decision not to go to, to college right out of high school and, and, and said, you know, pursue the dream in baseball. And it turned out college was always there. Uh, ba- baseball, as soon as I was, uh, you know, un- unfit to continue athletically, um, you know, it, it, it did disappear and college was there uh, still for me. So the right decision. But we were we were careful to negotiate a little bit of scholarship money into that contract as well. When you say we, is that you and an agent? Is that you, your parents and an agent? What was it? Yeah. It, um, so it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a group of us that had been through it before. Um, we were getting advice from, from all over the place. I, I think I mentioned some folks that were on my high school baseball team that had been through it recently, and we, we got advice uh, from them. And, uh, and, and then, uh, yeah, I had, I had an agent, I had multiple agents that wanted to work with me at that point. And, and they were all giving free advice that, that wasn't paid or signed in a contract. So, you know, you kind of listen to what they have to say and, and, you know, technically you don't want to lose your NCAA eligibility. So you don't sign any pieces of paper with them, but you do take the good advice and, and, you know, use it in the negotiation. And, and in high school, you didn't take the SAT, right? Uh, you know, I, I did, um, but it, but it wasn't. Uh, it, I really didn't care about it. Uh, I think we had a game later that day or something. Uh, so, so I think I think I just didn't study. Went in there and, and took it. I, I don't remember what I what I got in it. But when I was done playing baseball uh, or in my last year of baseball, I did have to go back and and uh, reapply to go to school to go to college. And and uh, they made me go take my my SAT again. So in in the you know, sort of ultimate shame. I was I, I the the uh, the location for my SAT was actually my old high school, and you know how it is. And uh, on SAT morning, you know all the kids show up and they're all standing out in front of the high school, you know, waiting for the doors to open to go in and take their SAT. And here's you know me standing there six years, seven years later, back at my same high school, standing there with a bunch of you know 16, 17 year olds waiting to take their SAT, and I got to go do the same thing. Yeah, you're a hulking guy that can hit a baseball 500 feet and you're hanging out with all these kids that are still coming into their bodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit of an awkward scene, but uh, ended up working out. Well, you ended up doing quite well on the math section. Uh, I think you aced the math section, which I can't fathom. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, And that, you know, and that was, so I'd applied to two schools. I applied to, to Caltech and MIT and I thought to myself, well, if I don't get into either of those, I'll just play another year in the minor leagues. I mean, I had good enough numbers. I could have kept playing. And uh, Caltech told me no. So, you know, uh, uh, I have strong feelings against Caltech at this point. But uh, but MIT wanted me um, so long as I could get the uh, the SATs and go through an interview process and convince them I could actually do the work. And 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 I did. And it worked out. So uh, re- really glad that I ended up up there and set out in California. Did you know going into MIT what you wanted to study exactly? Yeah, you know, I, I had uh, I wanted to do particle physics. I ended up getting a degree in nuclear engineering, a couple of degrees in nuclear engineering. But the um, uh, uh, the the particle physics had always been of interest to me, sort of on the theoretical side, and 
And I, I used to get crap from my teammates uh, while I was still playing ball because I'd, I'd, you know, we'd be sitting on the bus and you, you have this, you know, sort of movie like view of how it was on the bus on a 14 hour trip traveling from city to city. And yeah, you, you did. I mean, you had half the team was playing cards. The other half was, you know, playing a guitar in the back and everybody's joking and loud. And, and you know, I participated in that for the most part. But every once in a while, I'd pop my quantum mechanics book and, you know, I'd, I'd read through it and fa- found it fascinating and interesting and and uh, so, so I did when I, when I went into school, I, I really wanted to, uh, to do particle physics stuff. And I imagine MIT has uh, amazing equipment to be able to study that. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, they're, they're, they're top of the top of the world in just about every, you know, engineering and, and technical field. So uh, I, I felt like I could do and learn from the very best. And, and I did, um, you know, so, some of those, some of those professors I had were on the cutting edge and, and even stuff that wasn't particle physics. You know, I took my uh, genomics class from the guy who started the, the, the world genome project, mm. you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like everywhere you look, there was another Nobel prize winner and, you know, somebody else that was, you know, at the very top of their field. Uh, and, and I, I felt, I felt like I got the, the education that was commensurate with that kind of an institution. Yeah. Uh, what was it about nuclear engineering that, that you gravitated to it? Well, it, it was as simple as this. Uh, as a particle physicist, you can you can you know make fifty k a year and go work in a lab, no matter whether you've got an MIT degree or not. Uh, that that's what you're going to get. You're going to spend the next you know twenty years working your way up through the ranks and eventually becoming a senior scientist somewhere. And it's just hard to monetize. And um, <clears throat> you you take the same exact classes, maybe throw on a fluid dynamics class or a mechanical engineering class, call it an engineering degree, and now all of a sudden you can you can actually find a uh, a lot more job offers out there. And a lot of people don't realize this, but um, the, the average salary of students coming out of MIT is actually near the bottom. Uh, you, would, you would think that it's up near the top, but a lot of them, it, it's because they, they just want to stay in the lab. They just want to keep doing their you know, sort of postdoctoral research. And so they, the average salaries coming out of there are pretty low. Um, now, it's not all about the money either. And we, we, we ended up um, doing some really cool science and got a patent on a radiation detection system. And, and um, uh, it, it was a little bit more motivating there towards the end uh, in, in order to work on some of that kind of stuff. Uh, you got that patent while you were still in school. Yeah, yeah, we were still in school. My my thesis, it was my thesis project, um, and it was it was a radiation detection system to find uh, hidden nuclear weapons in cargo container ships. So back then, 9-11 had just happened, uh, so there was a lot of money flowing out of the government for uh, ways to keep terrorists from nuking us, and uh, we, we came up with what I still think is a pretty cool idea to you know, hide radiation detectors out, out on the, out on cargo container ships and, uh, did the work, did the, the patent, uh, uh, work and, and, and never really was able to do much more with it. Uh, once I left MIT, but my professor and some of his students continued to work on it. It, it is actually a very cool technology. Yeah. So to compare, so it sounds like you were in labs a ton in school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Compare yeah, I mean, that to growing up in Colorado or playing baseball in Carolina. You're outside playing baseball, and now you're finding yourself in labs a ton. I imagine both appealed to you, but tell me why they both appealed to you. And, and, and yeah, in well, you know, I mean, it was a huge shock from never having to use my brain to all of a sudden having to use my brain. Like, you know, you're out on the field. It's a it's a much different type of intelligence now. Now, I would argue some of the guys that I played ball with um, that that most people would would call you know, uh, on, on the lower end of the smart scale, were actually more brilliant than some of the people that I um, worked with at MIT. Uh, and it, it's just a different type of intelligence. It's a, it's an emotional intelligence. It's a physical, it's a, 
you know, understanding the world and controlling your thoughts and intelligence that, that is at a very, very high level with some of those guys I, I played baseball with. Um, and, and meanwhile, some of the, some of the kids that I, I went to school with at, at MIT had a different type of just extreme intelligence where you give them a problem, they're going to solve it. They're going to sit there and they're going to read their books and they're going to understand it in a way that nobody else can, and they're going to solve it. Uh, but they would never be able to communicate it to you. Right. So there's there's a there's a definite difference in contrast between those two types of intelligence. And and, you know, within two weeks, I left one world and showed up in another. And uh, that, that was a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, well, and the average incoming freshman was 18 years old. And you were what, 24, 25. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and married with with a, a daughter. <laughs> so it was it was definitely a different lifestyle at that point. Yeah, I, I have to ask, and you and I did talk about this briefly. MIT does have a baseball team. You did confirm that for me. Yes. You could not play for them because you had uh, already you'd made money, and I we say that money in, in quotes there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but you you did help out. Yeah, you know, I, I got to uh, got to know the baseball coach there a little bit, and and uh, you know, help them out from time to time. But you know, m- mostly it was just interesting tech that they were working on. They they were, um, in, in fact, on the early end of some of the strike zone stuff that you see in the in the big leagues now, where they they automatically track the ball in and tell you whether it's a ball or a strike on TV. Uh, so they they were doing some early work on some of that, and they were doing some work on you know making better medals for the bats and some stuff like that. So I I, I got to working with them a little bit more on that front rather than on the you know training and coaching them front but uh but yeah you know at, at MIT with baseball and and with football and and all the other sports there you know you get good luck getting anybody to come out and practice uh and, and and good luck getting them to show show up at the games because because they they're there to study you know in my case nuclear engineering so you know you're not going to you're not going to prioritize that you know your practice over getting a, an exam done that might might fail you if you don't get it right so you had a kid while you're going through MIT uh, your, your daughter. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Your, your, your daughter, I mean, new, newborns are not easy. What year school <laughs> were you when, when she, she was a newborn? She, yeah, she was, she was born in my freshman year. Um, and, and so I can distinctly remember, uh, being up all night long doing my problem sets with my, with my newborn baby on my shoulder, uh, you know, trying, trying to solve whatever, you know, whatever, uh, problems they had given me earlier that day. And, and, uh, I, I, I got to the point where I was keeping track of my sleep and, uh, and, and there, there were points where, I, and this isn't an exaggeration. These are just the numbers. It was an average of three hours for an entire semester. Um, it's, it's and, not healthy, right? No, no, it's not. It's not. And I'm, I'm not a guy that needs a lot of sleep to begin with, but, um, to go for several weeks at a time on an average of three hours of sleep is it's, it's a little over the top. Um, now I, every once in a while I would just crash and all of a sudden be gone for 12 hours, but, uh, but on average, ended up, which means there was a lot of one hour nights too. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah. The combination of a, a newborn and that in, intensity of, of study, I, I can't fathom. I'm, I'm glad you went through it and I didn't, Sean. Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to take credit for that. My wife was there helping out more than more than she'll even take credit for. But yeah, she she got us through uh, for sure. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and you got uh, you won't say this, but I'll say it. I think you're you're the only person uh, that got two nuclear engineering degrees in four years in MIT's <laughs> history. Is that right? Yeah, that, that is true. And you're right. I probably won't say that. But since, since you brought it up, yep, I, I did. I, I we we were um, we we're just about out of money up there. I think we talked to I, I feel like I'm talking way too much about money when I really don't care that much about it. Um, but when we were up there, we, we had one hundred dollars in the bank and, and we had to make decisions between eating that night or putting diapers on my kid. And um, and it was it was it was tough. Right. And, and we got to the point where 
um, about halfway through my junior year, we had decided, look, we can't afford to do this anymore. We're going to have to leave. So my wife's at home during the day when I'm up there at school one day and she's just clicking around on the Internet and she she clicks uh, uh, an ad for Colgate Palmolive that says, you know, you know, click here to enter the sweepstakes. She ended up winning twenty five thousand dollars by clicking on that ad. And it was literally the, the within two weeks of us deciding to leave me to quit school and, and finish. So we got that twenty five thousand dollars. We haven't talked about religious, re- religious things at all, but I, I, we were praying a lot at that time. Yeah. And it, it's it's my it's my full belief that, that God provided for us in that moment that I was supposed to continue at, at MIT. So, you know, that that doubled down on my motivation. And um, because we were already so strapped for cash, I ended up uh, getting my master's and my bachelor's at the same time. Uh, and and took took all of my you know graduate classes at the same time I was taking my undergraduate classes, and uh, and yeah they ended up giving me both degrees. I actually came just one credit short of a third degree. Uh, I had a physics degree as well, and um, you know if anybody at MIT ever listens to this, they'll be mad at me for saying it. But the uh, the physics department kept. Uh, realized I was going to get those two degrees in four years from from the nuclear engineering department and found a way to keep me from getting a third degree in physics. So uh, I could have. There's, there's a way of maintaining their reputations being really hard. It just it was I think it was just, uh, you know, a little bit of a slap in the face that somebody was going to get three degrees in four years. So um, uh, so so I think, you know, I, I could have gone back and got that, you know, pay, paid a little bit of extra money and got that credit at any point. But I think it's a better story to have not gotten that physics degree than to have gotten it. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but I kind of want you to go back and get your physics degree. <laughs> Just despite it, but yeah, no, yeah. I, I guess I understood where they were coming from, but yeah, you know, I, I never went back and finished. Wow. So, so after college, you were doing work uh, related to what you had studied at MIT, and you yeah. end up in 2010. Well, and by the way, when when I looked you up a few months ago, it, it had lots of fun stuff on you about baseball, uh, and then I looked you up tonight, and. Do you know you have a Wikipedia page now? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. I, I'm not not quite sure where that came from, but yeah, there's one out there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, gift basket diplomacy. We'll talk about it in a second. So, okay, you you uh, joined the Obama administration. Was there a vetting process? How did you end up joining the administration? Yeah, you know, um, there 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 was a vetting process. Of course, it was a very competitive interview process. And and um, uh, th- that said, though, there was not a political vetting pro- vetting process. Um, so it was very much merit based, which I will give the administration credit for. I'm not Republican or Democratic. I've, I'm, I'm not one party or the other on purpose. And they never asked me that. Um, so, uh, so I, I didn't, I expected to get a bunch of political questions in my interview. I did not. Um, and, and to their credit, I think they felt like, um, you know, preventing nuclear terrorism was not a political issue and it shouldn't be. And, and so they, they kept all of those questions out of there. And I, I felt like just hired on, on merit on, on my, my nuclear engineering past and, and my experience in doing some things to, to help prevent nuclear terrorism. And so, um, uh, they, they, they brought me on without political question. So tell me what that experience was like. It doesn't have to be the, the core job that you did there, but just the general experience working in the White House or, or frankly, for the president. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was it was cool to have the the access to the leadership in the, in the way that we did. I mean, it was it was a, a weekly experience that I was in with the National Security Advisor um, and sort of the top levels of the White House. Uh, we didn't see President Obama on on quite that frequent of a basis, but certainly briefed him a lot and and um, got to travel with him out to uh, Seoul. So I, the, the one responsibility that won't bore the the listening the listenership here, uh, I, I I was responsible for the Nuclear Security Summit, which was a big initiative. That, uh, that Obama had. 
And um, it was essentially bringing 50 leaders from 50 different countries together at the, as a presidential level and, and try to solve the, the nuclear security and nuclear terrorism issues. Um, and this was back in 2012. I think things were a lot worse off at that point than, than they are now. And, um, and, and so I did get to, to organize and, and help get the president ready to have those meetings with those 50 leaders. So we traveled to Seoul, South Korea. Um, in 2012, uh, with the president, and got got to you know support him through that entire process, and you know I'll tell you some of the some of the more surreal points in my life came in in that uh, in the, that preparation process in those few you know uh, days out out in Seoul with the president. I mean just just to be sitting in the motorcade. And you know, watch the the leader of the free world walk out of of a building with the nuclear football right behind him, knowing and and you know, just to explain, the nuclear football is what allows us to launch our nuclear weapons, knowing that we that and that's always got to go with him. It's always within a few you know a few meters of him in case in case he needs to act quickly. Knowing we were there to try to prevent those weapons from being used, um, and and knowing that we had a president that was that was expending an enormous amount of political capital to to prevent those weapons from being used against anybody. Um, and, and to kind of have that, you know, be sitting in the motorcade and watching, you know, all of that happen. That, that was a, a very surreal moment for me and, and, you know, made a lot of the hard work worth it. Yeah. Uh, he literally had, has the authority to uh, devastate a lot of the globe if he has the, uh, the rationale to do so. And, and it, there, right. there are protocols. It's not just a one man thing, obviously. But uh, yeah, the, the, you're saying it's surreal. It's the, maybe the most ironic setting I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, and it is. And, and to know, you know, sort of know enough about the inner workings of the of the White House to have confidence that that guy's going to make the right decisions. Um, and of course, you know, he never used them and never needed to. And, and there, there's a whole lot of reasons why that happens. I mean, they, we would also be obliterated ourselves. So, you know, you don't want to you don't want to launch a bunch of, uh, of nukes all over the globe and not expect any retaliation. So, you know, it, it, it was a, ra- a very rational decision and a very rational process. But it leads to moments like that um, where, where you, you just realize how much time and effort people are putting in. Uh, to to ensuring that we're in a safe world and and to be able to you know experience times like that I think was was um, uh, probably the pinnacle of my professional career. Yeah, a uh, ton of work, ton of dedication, very uh, being done very quietly. Uh, there are tons of heroes that never get noticed, and uh, yeah, you're you're one of those guys. And of course, you're talking on a podcast, and you're you may be world famous after being on this podcast, Sean. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, well, we are in the center of the universe. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. That. So, did you ever have one-on-one conversations with him with nobody else in the room, or was it always? I don't know. 10, uh, 10 people no, there, there were always with with President Obama himself. There were it, there was always a process, and there were always people around. I did get a chance to to chat with uh, with now President Biden a little bit one-on-one, and and uh, certainly with National Security Advisor one-on-one quite a bit, Deputy National Security Advisors quite a bit. So uh, certainly the the access at that level was was a little bit more frequent, and you know, sort of on a first name basis, where where I wouldn't just Hey, say, hey, Brock, you know, it's, it's not like that. Uh, but but he he was um, it did a did a very good job of, of garnering support within the White House. And and um, and I think it was because the rational thinking he sort of put behind the decisions that were being made. It was a very good leadership style in the sense that um, people wanted to do the work because they knew why they were doing the work. 
uh, not just, you know, sort of, I'm going to dictate to this to you because I'm the president of the United States and this is how it's going to go, uh, which, which, you know, made a, a really good work environment for, for all of us that were there at the time. Yeah, he, he brought everybody along. And uh, one of the easiest ways to do that, but a lot of people forget, is to tell people why they're working on something. It's yeah, very exactly. Important. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he, so, yeah. He, uh, every time I saw him on TV with a basketball in his hands, he, he would take a shot from like 15 feet and he'd always made it. Did he always make basketball shots or you have no idea? You weren't I, I, I wish I could comment on that, but but no comment. As far as I know, the president makes every shot that he makes that he takes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to play against him? No, 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 not, nothing like that. Nothing like that. It, it was um, it, it, one of the cool things that we did get to do while we were down there is he would invite the, the National Security Council out on um, the 4th of July. And uh, we, we would get to sit out on the South Lawn of the White House and um, and watch the fireworks from from there. And, that, you know, that's that's another one of those surreal moments here, you know, sitting at the seat of power in, in, in the world and, and watching, you know, the, the fireworks go from the South Lawn is, is, is pretty cool. Uh, one thing I did get to do uh, is play a game of softball on the South Lawn, though. Uh, so, so that, that was also one of the better experiences I've had because, you know, what, what's more American than to be, you know, sitting out there on the 4th of July on the South lawn of the white house playing, playing a, you know, swinging the bat around playing a game of softball. And, uh, in fact, there's a lot of pictures out there where, where I think that was, uh, uh, a lot of people uh, along the fence line saw that we were playing a, a game of softball and were taking pictures of us, you know, kind of on the 4th of July. I'm not super familiar with the grounds there, but there's actually not a, uh, a softball field like with the infield cut out in dirt no no we just created one yeah we just created one we we just made a home plate and somebody pitched and we just you know i I did get a hold of one i i I don't talk about myself very very much but you know i I did get a hold of one and it it, it was kind of cool watching the the trajectory of the ball heading towards the white house did it actually connect with the white house no 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 we're far enough away that would never happen plus secret service probably would have shot us (laughs) <laughs> it can't be a good look to have a, a softball at the white house yeah yeah that's right all right so you did some uh some things after your time in the white house but uh at some point after the the obama administration i imagine it was after you started the uh, shooting stars organization yeah yeah that's right um you know we touched on this a bit already but i mean i think the the, the thing that i really wanted to do at that point i felt like i mentioned that I kind of felt like i reached the pinnacle of a professional career at least within government and and uh, I, I looked back at myself and I said, you know, what, what, what else do I want to accomplish in life? And one of the things that I wanted to be able to do was to take the lessons that I had learned out of a, a, a similar game and teach those life lessons to uh, the, the youth that was willing to play those games. And my daughter was playing softball, so it became softball, not baseball. And, and you know, I fell in love with that game more than I did uh, a baseball. And so uh, so I did. I spent the next, uh, geez, must have been about 15 years or so coaching, uh, coaching her teams uh, all the way up through. And, and we started the Shooting Stars organization. We started a team in the Shooting Stars organization. And, you know, m- most of those those kids, I think, really took on the lessons we were trying to teach them. Uh, wh- whether or not they would ever admit it, who knows. But I, I know enough about all the kids that I coached through the years to know that, that it was worth uh, the, the time and effort that I put into to trying to teach some of that. Uh, and, and by that, I mean things like, you know, how to relax, how to fail and be OK with it, how to learn from failure, you know, how to concentrate, how to focus. Um, you know, I, I have no doubt that some of those kids did better on their math tests without me ever teaching them math because they could focus. 
right? And because they, they could go into a math test with confidence where they otherwise wouldn't have had confidence, or they could go in knowing if they fail that test, they'll just learn from it and, do, and ace the next one in the same way that if they go up and, and hit a ground ball and ground out, they're going to get the, the hit the next time they're up because they've learned through experience that they can do that. Um, and, and the other reason I went back to coach all those years was to spend quality time with my daughter and my wife. Uh, my wife played softball too, and, and, uh, my daughter loved it and she wanted to keep playing. So, uh, you know, it was a good time to, to be able to spend time with the family and, and, uh, get a bunch of memories that I will never be able to, to, um, repay. Uh, so worth all the time and effort for sure. So what year did you get heavily involved in coaching? Uh, I, I would say it was probably 2012, right around the time I left the, the White House. I, I certainly couldn't didn't have the time to coach. I mean, you're talking about 80 hour weeks and, and, and more than that. Uh, so didn't have the time to coach while I was there. But that, that was explicitly one of the things I did when when I left the White House was, was start spending some time on the field. Uh, so. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess uh, if that was 2012, it was, you know, nine years or so. But I, you know, I, my, my wife coached her for a couple of years um, while I was at the White House and I'd also coached for a couple of years before that, but not at a high level. You know, I mean, you're just talking about eight year olds at that point. Right. So, uh, Sean, according to Wikipedia, you're you're given credit for innovating a new form of diplomacy called gift basket diplomacy. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you uh, graciously accept the credit for that innovation? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. That's that's correct. Um, uh, I didn't you know, I was I was responsible for proposing it within the White House structure. So so here's the here's what it is in a nutshell. Um, you know, when, when you get into these big U.N. style negotiations where you're all sitting, each country is sitting there with their flag in front of them. And and, you know, you have 50 different leaders have to say, you know, make their position, their country positions known on some controversial, you know, topic of the meeting. Uh, what 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 countries tend to do is issue a communique at the end of that, which is just a paper that says, here's what we talked about and decided to do as a group. And the the, the communique oftentimes gets watered down. And and because you kind of go with this lowest common denominator, you know, so country X doesn't like, you know, language such and such. So now we all got to agree to not doing uh, as much, not taking as much action as we otherwise would have agreed to had country X not been, you know, a pain and not been agreeing to this consensus document. So what gift to the, so, so where this started is um, in that nuclear security summit process I described earlier, where we had 50 leaders coming to, to Washington uh, and for the first nuclear security summit. And each one of them was supposed to, to bring what was called a house gift uh, to President Obama, which was essentially just a promise to, you know, secure their nuclear material and prevent nuclear terrorism in, in some way or another, whatever their country could do. And, uh, and those started to get watered down because we started to try to build a consensus document against uh, amongst all those 50 countries. So what we did instead, and, and this is what I, I kind of proposed to do, was break into smaller countries and say, okay, if country X doesn't want to do, you know, as much as everybody else, then a smaller group of us are going to go do more. We're going to we're going to do more as a smaller group to, to you know, lock down nuclear material or, or you know, uh, prevent nuclear smuggling or something like that. And, and so that, that's what countries ended. We, we, we had this entire process, which we then called gift basket diplomacy, uh, which was a group of, of those house gifts all put into one basket. 
And, uh, and then we, uh, as, as countries, by the time we got to Seoul, uh, South Korea, a couple of years later, issued a bunch of statements that, that went much, much further than a sort of watered down consensus document would. Uh, so, for example, I, I, we worked a lot with the Jordanians and there, were, there was a Jordanian prince that was leading their delegation. And, and he was extremely good to work with because he went out and, and really, really built up this consensus around countering nuclear smuggling, you know, preventing you know, people from selling black market. At nuclear material, and, uh, and and so there, not everybody wanted to sign up for that. I think yeah, they ended up getting about 20, 20 countries or so to sign up for it. But those twenty countries went much further than the fifty would have gone had we had the you know sort of agreed to a lowest common denominator. Uh, so the so that 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 approach was new. Uh, we decided to implement it within the the Obama administration for the first time, and it was successful. And uh, because of its success, they started using that, that, that um, gift basket diplomacy and climate change negotiations and cybersecurity negotiations. And, and it's, it's been used, you know, and, and academically studied since. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as you're describing, I'm like, that's not that complicated of a concept, no. but nobody had ever done, done it before and nobody proposed it uh, in such an international way. And so, yeah, if you think about it, I'll use football as an analogy. Together, we've decided we will go to our own 20-yard line, but why wouldn't you have people that are willing to go to the other five-yard line, take yeah. it all the way to the other five-yard line? And if it's only 10 or 20 out of the 50, so what? You're, you're still giving more to the world by allowing uh, those 10 or 20 to move forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good analogy. And, and you know, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't think that it was that brilliant of an idea. I just think it took somebody that wasn't trained as a diplomat, that was a nuclear engineer to come in there and say, hey, this diplomacy stuff isn't working the way you guys are all been trained to do it. Why don't we think about this in a different way? It's brilliant the first time anything happens and it works. <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess so. <laughs> but you're right, it's not that complicated an idea. Uh, and it's been used to, look, I, I'm not trying to uh, draw a correlation between what you're describing that happened back in 2012 with what happens today. But as the casual uh, observer of news, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of nuclear proliferation talk, uh, at least in the news. And I don't know if that's the way the news is covered these days or if there's something that's changed uh, dramatically on the world stage. But it just feels like... Uh, nuclear weapons in the hands of bad guys doesn't seem to be as big a concern as it was, say, nine years ago. Yeah, and and I think that's in large part to to the success. In fact, I'll take all of the success. No, I'm I'm just kidding. I, there there are thousands of people in government and in in the U.S. government and in governments across the world that got us to that point. Um, but but it it was it did take that high level political pressure to get it done. And and yeah, at the end of the day, we haven't been nuked. Um, so you know, it's 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 impossible to prove a, a negative, right? It's it's not like we can say for sure we would have been nuked had we not done all of that. Uh, probably wouldn't have been either. Um, but but certainly you, you can look back at it and say, look, a lot of those programs were highly, highly successful in, in preventing, you know, bad guys from getting a hold of a nuke and using it against somebody, whether it was us or some other country. Uh, you know, that didn't happen. And, and I do think it's as a result of those thousands of people, you know, doing a lot of work. I, I mean, I'll just give you an example. We, uh, we, we, one of the things we announced back then was the, the removal of all the highly enriched uranium from Ukraine. Uh, well, well, that was a big deal back in the day. Um, you know, people were very worried about the, the nuclear material in Ukraine and somebody getting a hold of it. Well, we had to call a bunch of our Department of Energy folks that were responsible for getting that program done. And on Christmas, literally Christmas Eve, called them and put them on a plane and flew them over to Kiev 
and had them work with the Ukrainians to, to get that material out because that was the, but for a bunch of legal reasons, that was the only way we could get it done. So, you, you know, you had people giving up their Christmases at the last minute telling their kids, sorry, I'm on a plane. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't tell you why, but I'll, I'll tell you when I get home. And, and, you know, now Ukraine doesn't have any HEU in their country anymore uh, because of some of the work that some of those people did. And, and we had to make that call. You know, we had to be the ones to say, look, sorry about your Christmas, but this has got to be done. Yeah. And look, there are a lot of people that, that do those sorts of unsung things and you, you, you never know about it. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I don't know about all of it, frankly, uh, you <laughs> make me depressed a lot. But uh, yeah, yeah at, at the highest levels with, with the U.S. And, and, and maybe I won't say enemies, but people that I, over time we've worried about uh, returning uh, or firing first and then we return. That, that was known back in the 80s as mutually assured destruction. I'm sure that that terminology is carried on. But what you're yep. talking about is like dirty bombs or some actor that was not on somebody's radar doing something that has uh, creates damage for decades to come in wherever that dirty bomb or that nuclear device uh, was detonated. Yeah, yeah, correct. The mutually assured destruction doesn't apply to, to nuclear terrorism, right? Um, so it, it prevented the, the Soviets and us from from going to, you know, in the middle of the Cold War from making that a hot war. And, and you know, certainly the, the political science theories has, has worked very well over the years. I mean, ultimately, there hasn't been an exchange of nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, since, since World War II. So uh, that, that, that deterrence theory has actually worked, but it simply does not apply to a terrorist that doesn't have a territory to defend, doesn't have citizens to defend, and only wants to inflict as much you know, political and physical damage on their target as, as possible. So yeah, it did require not just a bunch of our nukes pointed at Al-Qaeda's hideouts, it required us to, to have a whole new set of tools, which, you know, frankly, looking back on it, I think we did a really good job of making it very, very difficult uh, for somebody who uh, th doesn't have a nuclear weapon to go steal one and use it. Yeah, very cool. Uh, it, look, this is a weird question, and you can say, Paul, it's such a weird question. I, I don't want to talk about it, but the first time a nuclear weapon uh, was used, I think the only two times nuclear bombs have been dropped were in, in Japan at the Correct. end of World War II. I happened to write a paper about whether I thought it was uh, the right decision to make, and I, I won't share my my, uh, my my thesis there. But uh, do you think the world understood nuclear energy back then? It's it's more of a history question than I think it is anything else. But I mean, I with 2021 hindsight, I would say I don't think Truman and his administration quite understood the impact of, of what they were doing. No, no, I don't. I don't think they did, and and I think it was less about dropping the the two nukes that we dropped, and more about the um, spread of nuclear material that that we as the as the United States, you know, put across the world after that, and then of course other countries did the same thing. Uh, that that was really the more the threat that that led to that than the the two initial uh, nukes, and then the one that we set off, you know, the the test that we set off um, before that uh, Trinity. Um, but the uh, um, the whether or not I, I believe that that's ultimately saved lives or not, I mean that's that's a, a question of decades worth of debate. I mean ultimately we probably, in my view, we probably saved more lives because of the carpet bombing that was that was happening. It was frankly worse in in my view, um, and and the potential of of loss of American lives. Uh, but, but, you know, again, I, I can, I can see both our sides of that argument. You know, we we're talking earlier about, um, surreal moments. I'll, I'll give you another one. Um, we, we proposed in the context of this nuclear security summit, 
uh, to the Japanese that we that we create a group, a bilateral group with them to prevent nuclear terrorism. And uh, we had done all the normal diplomatic things to try to get ready for a meeting. And, and uh, me and, and my boss and, and a bunch of other uh, parts of the U.S. government got on a plane to go have a first meeting with the Japanese about preventing nuclear terrorism. Well, you know, you talk about an awkward situation when you think about the political context under which this group of American diplomats are showing up to Japan to talk about them removing the nuclear material from their country and locking down nuclear material from their country so that it's never used against anybody in the world, but, you know, implicitly against us. Um, so so that that was a surreal moment. And, and thank goodness we had some very um, knowledgeable and also understanding counterparts on the other side. Uh, we, did, we did launch what was called the, the Nuclear Security Working Group with the Japanese and actually got a lot done, not just in Japan and not just in the United States, but um, as, a, as a joint uh, effort between, with us and the Japanese helping other countries too. Um, so, so it was a surreal moment that could have gone south given the history between the two countries on the nuclear side. Uh, but because of the, the uh, collegiality that the Japanese and frankly, the, the U.S. showed as well, uh, we, we did actually get quite a bit done. Yeah. On the one hand, 76 years ago is a long time ago. On the other hand, it's not that long. Ago. It's not that long. Yeah, correct. Yeah. All right. So uh, wildly changing uh, topics here. Back to the shooting yeah. stars. What do you finally remember about your time uh, with shooting stars? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, on the personal level, it's it's a, a lot of watching my daughter, you know, grow as a player, grow as a as a young lady, and watching her. And this is all going to sound cliche, but as a, as a dad, I can't help but say, you know, I, well, watching her fail a lot uh, at the beginning, and then watching her succeed a lot at the end, and knowing that that um, there was both a lot of hard work on her front, but a, a lot of you know help that I gave her along the way, and teaching her how to grow up. Uh, you know, I think I think that was one of the big ones. But, uh, you know, also also the, it's a lot of little moments that that um, that all culminates in a bigger picture of watching each one of the players that I coached through the years, um, you know, learn to learn to fail and then learn to succeed after that, you know, learn, you know, come, come back to me and say, oh, yeah, I actually did do well on that math test. Um, so so it's no big moment. Uh, I, 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 I wish there was a cool story around it, but. The, anybody who has coached, I think, can can identify with this. That you know, it's a, it's a bunch of small moments that, that you realize, hey, that that was that was time well spent, and that kid is going to be a better citizen in this world, in part because of the the time spent on the field learning those lessons. So it really isn't about you know increasing bat speed or arm speed or anything like that. It's it's really about you know that was the the way that we we got to the the end goal. Yeah, you're really teaching them how to uh, become young adults and you're uh, you're helping them fare through the world in a way that's productive for them and for those around them. And yeah, it's, it's part of the maturing process. And they, they need people like you and other adults around them to do that. And so it sounds like Shooting Stars provided that opportunity for, for you and others. And that's there, there need to be more organizations like that. I'm not a big softball guy. Thanks. and I never I've never understood uh, pitching fast underhanded. Uh, I don't know <laughs> how, how how young ladies do it, actually. Uh, yeah, well, me either. They all hated hitting my BP because I couldn't throw them strikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. All right, so what are you up to these days? Yeah, so we, we just moved to Florida. I took a job at, uh, at a defense contractor. So I'm, I'm out of government now. I'm working for L3 Harris, which is, you know, one of the, the top uh, five or six defense contractors in the, in the country and uh, actually in the world. 
and and you know working on some cutting edge technology for them so i'm an advanced concepts engineer is what we call it and um you know it's it's really just some cool cutting edge stuff that you know really really i think can be game-changing technology as you look out just a few years even um, from now. So uh, specifically in just in the last two weeks, we've been doing a lot of work on some microelectronics stuff and some quantum computing stuff um, that, that the company has has invested in and is is really taking to the next level in terms of the um, the, the technology being sort of on that very cutting edge of, of what the world is capable of doing. And, and are you loving the day to day? Yeah, you know, I do. And it's, it's a new job, right? So I've, I've only been here for a few weeks and, and it's still kind of learning the internal processes. But what, what's fun about it is, you know, I, I told you earlier, I was, I was into uh, particle physics and I, I really like doing that stuff. And, you know, a lot of that is theoretical. And in fact, you asked me the story about, well, why did you do nuclear engineering instead of, instead of physics and continuing that? And, and it's because, you know, I like to see the application of the technology, um, and and you can't actually do that with an engineering degree. So now that I, I, I am an engineer and and kind of working with that, the the quantum is a good is a good example, right? Um, if we're we're as a as a country and as a, a scientific world, and and I guess specifically in the company I'm representing now, you know, if we're able to advance uh, some of those technologies in the quantum realm, it changes everything in terms of how we communicate and um, and how we we uh, see and use computers and and some you know some other just really really cool stuff that that I think you know advances us as a as a um, race and as a society. All right, so I'm going to ask you. This is a, a very podcast uh, selfish thing for me to ask. Um, somebody said, "Hey, Paul, you're really excited about doing this podcast. Will podcasts be a thing like five or ten years from now? Because the technology has advanced way beyond this notion of people talking to each other and recording that conversation." And I said, "I have no idea, but I don't think so. I think the internet is kind of a, a this massive leap ahead for uh, mankind and society." But it sounds like I could be wrong. You're talking about things that maybe change how people. Uh, I, I don't. I don't even know. I can't even comprehend it, Sean. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, will I guess... be podcasting ten years from now. <laughs> yeah, you will. You know why? Because people care about this kind of stuff. I mean, this this is how people learn what what other people are doing across the world. And and in fact, that is what what has driven so much of the the revolution in communications. Right? Is is the ability to connect. I mean, I'm sitting down in Florida right now. You know, you're you're up in Virginia, and and ten years ago, or or well, maybe a little bit longer than that, we wouldn't have been able to have such an easy conversation right now. And you certainly wouldn't have been able to publish it out on the internet and have everybody, you know, be able to listen to it streaming, you know, without without losing their connection. And and um, so, yeah, I, I think you know, whenever I said that the the human race is is really going to see some game changing technologies. You know, I, I think I think a lot of that has to do with the speed of communication and the speed of computing power. Um, and and I, I think as you look a few years out, you're you're going to see capabilities to to do things like virtual reality and things like um, you know being able to push large, very large amounts of data through a a, a quantum computer and and via you know quantum encrypted communication that can't be broken. In, in, in a way that, that you just can't even fathom at this point. All right, uh, second to last question. Does Schrodinger's cat exist? It, it depends on whether you look at it or look at him or not, right? So um, a tree, if it falls in the woods and you don't look at it, it's not, it hasn't fallen. It's the same question. Okay, <laughs> so, 
so so yeah there's that that is a a uh, a fun fun conversation to have that will probably bore everybody but uh that that is in fact whenever i said quantum co- uh, communication a second ago and quantum cryptography um that that it it is uh one of those weird traits of quantum mechanics that allows that thing to happen so uh for example if if i sent you um a, a communication uh, and and put it put it put a Schrodinger's cat in a box, and we had two Schrodinger's cats, and they they were in these states of either being alive or dead. And you had one on your end, and I had one on my end. The very fact that I observed whether my cat is dead or alive determines whether or not your cat is dead or alive. This is the very weird. And you're sitting up there in Virginia. This is the very weird world of quantum uh, quantum mechanics, but this actually works. And and there, you know, there are a lot of people out there working on exactly this technology and and uh, being able to communicate in a in a way that's super secure like that. Wow, very cool. Well, I'm glad you're uh, you're on the front edge of that, and uh, we need people like you. And I'm glad for having you do the things you've done in your life to include the baseball, which is uh, super cool for you. Uh, but what you've done for our country. I really appreciate uh, everything you've done, man. Uh, let's well, end with, uh, tell us a little bit more about your uh, your wife and daughter. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, well, you know, like I said, we just moved down to Florida. Um, you know, we're, we're super happy to be be here in a warm environment and just kind of in the process of, of moving in. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a transitionary time for us with, with our daughter going off to school and and, you know, being empty nesters at this point where, you know, she's our only kid. So uh, what, what's fun about that is is finding new things to do together and, and you know, new adventures to have together where, where we kind of built our life around softball um, over the past few years. And, and we'll continue to do that while we go watch her play. But uh, now, now we'll have some time to find our next adventure and, and, and have fun, you know, doing something else. And we don't quite know what that is yet. We just know we'll find something fun to do. Well, you're near water. There's a lot of cool things you can do. Uh, in yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're, we're probably going to have to buy a boat. Uh, I'm a boat owner. I can tell you it's not, it's, uh, it's good and bad, man. <laughs> All right, cool. John, I'm going to end the recording. Thanks so much sure. for joining us, man. And just stay yeah. on for a second if you don't mind. Okay. Yep. It's been great seeing you. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.